0: a lot of money. How much did it cost him? I don't know, he stole it.
1: Hmm. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 15, This Magnificent Display of a Fusion. As keen listeners will know, this podcast is now coming to you in living stereo, so it gives me great pleasure to say that seated on my left hand, is the man who brought the Marx Brothers musical, I'll Say She Is, back to the New York stage, it should never have left, and then told the tangled tale in his compulsive tome, Give Me a Thrill, Mr. Noah Dyer.
2: Good morning, or evening, or afternoon, Matthew, Bob, Jay, happy to be here as always.
1: And with Noah as ever, is the man who not only presents the Marx Brothers Council podcast, but mixes and edits it too. So if at any point we sound either coherent or on topic, you'll know he's been hard at work. Seated on my (laughs) right hand. Mr. Bob Gasell,
3: Thank you, Matthew. Let me echo Noah's sentiment. Uh, he's happy
1: to be here. <laughs> and I'm Matthew Conium, eating through a tube. I'll
4: have another
1: cup of coffee. Joining us for this edition of the podcast is a man who was part of that band of Marx obsessives whose efforts and enthusiasm helped to engine the great Marx Brothers revival of the 1970s, that brief shining moment when to be a Marx Brothers fan was not merely to be fortunate, but also to be at the cultural cutting edge. As reigning firefly of the Marx Brotherhood, he hosted and interviewed numerous Marxian contemporaries, scholars and relatives, and we'll have some exciting and exclusive news about the audio archive he accrued later in the program if you're a member of the marx brothers Ooh. council facebook group you'll be more than familiar with his idiosyncratic musings which like number 19 buses are always welcome and usually arrive three at a time exactly when you least expect them he also has a museum devoted to rondo hatton in his lavatory he needs no introduction neither does he deserve one he's Jay hopkins
4: Well, thank you so much for that odd introduction. (laughs) And greetings from St. Paul, Minnesota, by the way.
1: Well, Jay, we always like to start off with guests by asking them um, when they first encountered the Marx Brothers and how they first encountered the Marx Brothers and what effect it had on their young brains. So what's, what's your origin story?
4: Well, there was a show on locally late on Sunday evenings called Comedy for Big Kids, and this intrigued me cuz I, I didn't know what that meant for one thing. I knew what comedy was, but I wasn't sure what it meant by a big kid. I mean, w- would I have to be tall to watch this program? Also being, you know, the Sunday before school, and that would have been high school for me, uh, staying up that late was a little chancy, but I was always intrigued by the Marx Brothers. I had heard of them. But I had never seen them. And I think the first movie I caught on that television show was Monkey Business, Mm. which was a great introduction, obviously, because it bewildered me immediately. And uh, I could barely keep up with the dialogue. And shortly thereafter, Richard Onobley's Why a Duck came out. And once I purchased that book, I could take my time and read the dialogue and get the jokes. So it was very helpful in that regard. And then there would be theatrical revivals, happily. And um, I would always attend those because, of course, it's always much more pleasant being with an audience watching the Marx Brothers films. So usually, locally, you would find Deck Soup and Horse Feathers on a double bill. Um, sometimes you would find a nun at the opera... And don't ask me why, but the big store.
3: <laughs>
4: and uh, and not too long after that, uh, Animal Crackers was reissued. So that was a very big deal. So, yeah, all that kind of came to a head in the, for me at least, it would have been, well, I guess it would have been the uh, mid-70s. Well, revivals are very much the theme of our podcast
1: this time. Um, on October the 13th, 2016, Donald Liebenson said to readers of the Los Angeles Times, the Marx Brothers are having a moment again. And he asked, what's behind this sudden Marxist uprising? He went on to list a flurry of recent arrivals, the Blu-ray set with the newly discovered uncut version of Animal Crackers, My Book, Noah's Show and Book, Robert Bader's Four of the Three Musketeers, and the possibility of there being a film of Steve Stolio's Raised Eyebrows. Had it come along in time, he would doubtless have added Josh Frank's on Horseback Salad to the list too. But a flurry of activity is not a snowstorm, still less is it a blizzard, and I think it's fair to say that while these are unusually exciting times to be a Marx Brothers fan, they still pale beside the veritable avalanche that was the 1970s revival. Noah and I have certainly tried our hardest to make it all happen again, not only writing and performing, but also programming events and festivals designed to reignite that sense of community. But while we were mere boys and beardless youths at the time of the original revival, Mr. Cassell and Mr. Hopkins were very much there. So uh, talk us through something about those days. Was it really like waking up every day in a different universe?
4: (laughs) Not for me. No, I I don't uh, wish to – Put a damper on on this. Uh, uh, I'll go on. It, uh, at least not this early. Usually, I hold off on putting a damper into the conversation for a good five minutes. I think we're only about three minutes into this thing. Um, obviously, during the Vietnam War, there was a lot of interest in duck soup. I have no doubt that that's why. In fact, I think the first time I saw a theatrical revival of Horse Feathers and Duck Soup, it was on. University of Minnesota campus. Uh, they used to have a uh, theater there, uh, cleverly called the Campus Theater. Well, they always had a packed house. And, of course, uh, Duck Soup in particular would appeal to college students during mm-hmm. the anti-war movement. So um, and Groucho himself uh, said as much on the Dick Cavett show. So that certainly had something to do with the appeal back then.
3: Yeah, duck soup and horse feathers really seem to be the ones that, uh, grabbed the attention of, of the younger folks. You know, uh, I think they had been playing Marx Brothers films through the years. It wasn't new, but I think they were, they'd just been random. Okay. We'll book at the circus. We'll book the coconuts. But I think once we got to, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, people really focused on, you know, uh, I believe horse feathers and duck soup. And that's where a lot of the attention and a lot of the legend came from.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they're certainly very fortunate, weren't they? In that they, of all the things that they could have applied their style to, they happened to make a war film and a college film. I mean, that, that's extremely oh, yeah. fortunate, isn't it? Yeah, but, but, yeah. um, it, it's more than just that, isn't it? I mean, there is, um, the 1960s particularly were a, a time when the kind of the older comedians were, were really sort of being put out to grass more than, more than revived. And it, it is it is those aspects of the Marx Brothers that make them unique, um, that that appealed here, wasn't it? Well,
3: particularly to a younger generation, you know. The, yeah, the, yeah. You know, there wasn't a lot of comedy for people under twenty-five years old. It was either you do you like Lucy? Do you like, uh, you know, do you like Jerry Lewis? Well, if you don't, you know, what what what's, what was next? And there was a gap here.
2: I have a theory, which is not really my theory, but I'll appropriate and advance it. Um, Adam Gopnik, in a uh, 2012 article in The New Yorker called The 40-Year Itch, proposes that there's always, um, this is, I'm quoting from him, the prime site of nostalgia is always whatever happened, or is thought to have happened, in the decade between 40 and 50 years past. Um, and it really is true, if you look through the decades, there are always exceptions, but You know, in the 1940s, there's tremendous um, nostalgia for the aughts, Meet Me in St. Louis, The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, The 60s become this huge boom for 20s nostalgia. Gopnik talks about all those Beatles albums that had 20s pastiche numbers on them, Mm -hmm. like When I'm 64 and Maxwell Silverhammer. Then the 70s, we get all this 30s stuff, The Sting, Paper Moon, Star Wars based on, you know, 30s film serials. Um, in the eighties, it's all this forties stuff. It's, it's incredible how consistently true mm-hmm. that was. Mm-hmm. And now today, it's all a lot of nostalgia for the 1980s, uh, these days. So it was sort of time for that in the 1960s and 70s to look back at the 30s, and it has something to do with the age of the people who are influential in popular culture. Generally, it's all driven by people in their 40s, nostalgic for the period of their early childhood or or just before.
3: You know, in uh, Back to the Future Part 2, which uh, a lot of it takes place in 2015, uh, they do go back to a 1980s theme bar. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there is something about the, the allure of the... It's the, it's the not-too-distant past, the past you can almost reach.
4: I would like to add that Jack Haley Jr. produced and directed a compilation film that came out in 1974 called Best Entertainment. And personally, yeah. that was the film that introduced me to the musical genre. Mm -hmm. and i just adored that film and i wound up uh talking to jack Haley jr sometime later years later um about another film that he was producing called that's dancing but that's how i can remember 1974 uh being sort of in the middle of that particular nostalgia craze because of that's entertainment which was a huge hit
1: yes and there was also a big bogart boom wasn't there and uh yeah. generally i mean peter bogdanovich and mel brooks's early successes were, were very much rooted in that that cultural moment um so i suppose it's it's a combination then isn't it of, of the fact that that era per se was 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 becoming the the, the focus of nostalgic attention plus the fact that the, the people doing the looking back had a kind of an agenda that the marx brothers uh meshed with more than than other entertainers of, of the era Actually, let's let's try and try and nail down this timeline, because um, I think it's fair to say that this this really happened a a little later than we might be inclined uh, to think. And and only last week, Bob showed me a fascinating piece from the Oakland Tribune, in which uh, Gerald Knackman writes, there really ought to be a Marx Brothers repertory theatre where, suddenly feeling an irresistible urge to laugh without let up for 90 minutes, you could go any time at all and be able to see one of their comedies. Now that Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields and Mae West have all been rediscovered and their films properly enshrined by a new generation who embraced them with a very personal ardour, it's about time the Marx Brothers received the same sort of mass reclamation. And the interesting thing is that this was written in 1969.
3: Yeah, I was surprised to read that, to be honest. You know, I was around. Uh, the Marx Brothers had been big. Maybe they went to another plateau, but they, they they, were already big, 1969, 1970. You know, maybe what he's thinking about, a lot of the other uh, older comedians and old films that were popular at the time, Laurel and Hardy and Our Gang and The Three Stooges were on a daily basis uh, because they'd made shorts and they were on, you know, after school kid shows, they were on a regular t- regular time slot whereas the Marx brothers you know didn't couldn't do that because they just made features and couldn't be programmed so often so maybe in this guy's uh, universe they hadn't been so prominent
1: and we also have to remember of course that it was also in 1969 that Groucho gave the interview that I love quoting as often as I can because it's it's so annoying to people in which he says <laughs> uh, I'm not much in sympathy with the kids I sympathize with the parents I happen to be one, and I think it's nonsense to blame the parents when kids take LSD. Kids today are detestable, and thank God mine are grown up. By and large, the parents are superior to the kids they're spawning. You couldn't give me another one. And it's no good saying that the ones you read about are a minority. They're not a minority if they're all yours, and you have to wait for the car to get home to know your daughter hasn't got pregnant or leprosy. I never thought the time would come when I'd be rooting for Nixon but it's better than obliteration. That was Groucho in 1969. In other words, he didn't have a good time making skidoo. <laughs> but clearly, he, he didn't see what was around the corner there, did
2: he? I think Groucho is at least partly responding against the fact that, you know, this period in the 60s and 70s, it, it's still fairly early in the phenomenon of the culture caring about young people's opinions, you know, the, the post-World War II phenomenon of teenagers and people in high school School and college being this, what we would now call a demographic force. And so it partly, maybe the Marx Brothers revival of the 70s is about everyone suddenly paying attention to young people and what they were
3: interested Mm. in,
2: you Mm. know, in a way that they hadn't been so much before the war and immediately after it.
3: But back to that article Matthew was reading, uh, 1969, I'm not buying the premise that they weren't already uh, back uh, huge in the popular culture. There are just too many signposts that indicate otherwise. You know, uh, Minnie's Boys, uh, was in pre-production and there's no way that wasn't being made if they weren't already culturally significant. I'm not buying it.
1: I mean, interestingly, I think it may have started a little earlier over here. Um, yes. I know in in America. I mean, obviously, uh, new generations of comedians come along and replace older generations uh, constantly. But I think it was much more of an organic process in America. Although you had some very confrontational people like Lenny Bruce and so on, um, the old guard was still very much. Uh, in attendance whereas over here i think the changes were slightly more revolutionary starting with the goons in the 50s and then um, moving on to beyond the fringe which created the satire boom that went through that was the week that was and on to the pointed absurdism of monty python's flying circus Mm -hmm. Um, uh, all of these people were uh, openly indebted to the marx brothers and also of course we didn't get you bet your life so we never saw Groucho's transformation into the kind of avuncular elder statesman. We only had the uh, the Prime Marx Brothers material to go on.
3: Are you saying they didn't air it or you just didn't get it?
1: They
4: didn't air it. It wasn't shown at <laughs> all. <as well. laughs> <laughs> it's not difficult to get that quiz show. Plus, plus we didn't get it. But... Um,
1: but um, <laughs> When uh, Groucho came over in 1965 to do a British version of You Bet Your Life, mm-hmm. which unfortunately wasn't wasn't well received, he did stop off at the National Film Theatre for an interview and a screening of Animal Crackers, which we were freely able to see. And it is uh, interesting, I think, that according to reports, the audience was predominantly young. It was predominantly undergraduate. And it was very noisy and boisterous and, and vocally hero worshipping of him. And this was 1965.
3: And there was, wasn't there that big uh, Paris uh, film festival that he went over for where he was given some honors? Right.
4: Well, he got the, was, how do you pronounce it? The Légion d'Honneur or something like that? Yeah. The, that'll do for me. So would that's that that that's be- how Inspector Clouseau pronounces it. <laughs> 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 oh, dear. <laughs>
3: But it's interesting that you know when we talk about the Marx in revival, sixties and seventies, we're we're pretty much talking younger folks, a younger generation. I mean, I was around. My, my parents weren't weren't interested again. They had seen the films first time around. They weren't like jumping back in. It was just people under thirty, pretty much.
2: It was comedy for big kids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's right. I mean, possibly the the Dick Cavett shows um, were one of the first big uh, indications of of his new his new status. I, w- I wonder how important we all think they were, not just in terms of of feeding the flames, but uh, but actually stoking them. Because the Cavett show, after all. What was the talk show, wasn't it, I think, that that did give over serious time to voices from the counterculture as well as uh, the old-timers.
4: I think Ralchel may have made six to seven appearances on that show, and whenever I knew he was going to be on, I always had my reel-to-reel tape deck recording every single word. And I, like a lot of people I've met on the council and otherwise uh, on the internet – um, that was not an uncommon thing if he were a fan, or even of old film. You know, he would tape because videotape wasn't available for home use back then. So the best we could do was audio tape stuff. So anytime he was on the Cavett show, I was, I was there.
0: I had a, in, an, in the Plaza Hotel once, when I was doing the quiz show, I had, there was a priest in the elevator. And I hope you're not offended by this because I would just as we tell a story about a rabbi, but it doesn't fit. <laughs> Neither did the rabbi, and they finally threw him out of the synagogue.
5: <laughs> but, but what happened? Anyhow, this worked.
0: priest said to me, he says, can not you go your marks? And I says, Yes. He says, Gee, uh, my mother's crazy about you. And I says, Really? I didn't know you fellas had mothers. I, I had a, a priest stop me up in Montreal some years ago. And he came up to me and he says, aren't you your Marx? And I says, yes. He says, may I shake your hand? I said, fine. And I shook hands with him. He said, I want to thank you for all the joy you've put into the world. And I says, I want to thank you for all the joy you've taken out of
6: it."
2: <laughs> I think it makes sense. The Cavett show is the kind of um, intellectual and political alternative to the much more mainstream hmm. Carson show.
3: Hmm, I guess I'm the outlier here. I always attributed their revival to Groucho's uh, cameo appearance on the Julia sitcom.
4: Uh, Well, you're free to uh, try to sell us that theory. But it is
1: very interesting, isn't it, to watch him on cabot, because there is um, – The the audience, are you know, are clearly uh, not just um, glad to see him, but they, you know, they've, they've come to see him and they sort of cheer and applaud everything he says. And, and you can see him almost sort of stopping and taking stock and thinking, wow, you know, this is this is something new.
3: But I wonder if that was more of an acknowledgement or a tribute to his, you know, you bet your life period than it was to his Marx Brothers career.
1: I wonder that I don't know because it's it's all um you know out of sync for me.
4: Well if you're talking about younger people I think they would have been introduced to the quiz show through syndication because mm-hmm. that show was on for well at least 13 years and the reason it was uh Extinguished. One of the reasons, at least, was was because of the age of the audience. I mean, the people that were watching Groucho were about as old as Groucho. And if you look at the original commercials, if you happen to get your hands on some of those complete prints or videos, mm-hmm. you know, they're selling laxatives and, you know, all manner of uh, things that the, the elder generation would be interested in. And uh, they are not the target market of most... Um, advertisers so uh they had a bit of trouble as the years went by attracting a younger audience Mm. so i suspect that the people the younger people who were watching cavett both on television and in the audience because occasionally you'll get a visual of the audience members those that were young were probably more familiar with groucho from the movies than from the quiz show that's my guess Hmm. So you're saying young people aren't interested in laxatives? Uh, Well, I know that I... I, I, I I I've always been interested in laxatives. (laughs) <laughs> I'm running a thesis on it, but I'd rather not go into the details at this moment. You I'd, I'd have to go over you're... to the Rondo Hatton Memorial Lounge, which is within running distance. I'm happy to inform you.
6: <laughs>
2: I wonder if the enthusiasm for the Marx Brothers among some of these, you know, very popular comedians of the time had something to do with it. Young people who were tuning in to Cavett himself and mm-hmm. Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, yeah. all these guys were very... Um, outspoken about how much they loved and were influenced by the Marx Brothers. Good
1: point. Good point. Yeah.
2: So I wonder if there was some. Uh, oh, we we better check it out.
1: Actually, speaking of of Woody Allen and Bill Cosby, um, if anyone's is interested in uh, in seeing some of Groucho's uh, uncut appearances on Cabot, do uh, rush out and get the Dick Cabot show uh, box sets because there's some some very good stuff on there on the uh, Hollywood Greats box set there's the December 1971 yeah. show in which Groucho appears alongside Dan Rowan and Debbie Reynolds with whom he has a very amusing uh, pretty near <laughs> near the knuckle exchange which she, she takes in reasonably good spirits but she does she does leave early it's true um, uh, and also Aaron Fleming is on that show not just um, doing a little bit of performing with Groucho but but interviewed at some length and it's a very very fascinating interview with Aaron because it's uh, she appears very likeable and very sane uh, early days, I guess. Um, Also on the Comic Legends box set, a separate box set, you get the May 1971 show, in which Groucho appears with Truman Capote, to whom he proposes marriage, and the naturalist yes. Jim Fowler, whose three-toed sloth he calls the lousiest-looking dog I've ever seen. <laughs> um,
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you also get the the glorious uh, show from September 1969, which features just Groucho for the full duration. And this one, to me, is is really the one to remember these years by, better in every way, I would say, than An Evening with Groucho. So uh, do, do rush out and get those sets if you can, particularly comic greats. It does have a lot of Woody Allen and a lot of Bill Cosby on it, so it's not likely to be reissued anytime soon.
4: I'm prepared to say um, on a general level that I found Groucho Marx funnier on the Cavett show, in particular the 1969 show that you referred to, yeah. Matthew, than I do in the Marx Brothers films. Ooh. Now, that that sounds, you know... Uh, provocative. Well, certainly provocative, but it's, it's an honest... Uh, <laughs> it's not very well stated, I'm afraid, but uh, I'll, I'll accept provocative. But it's true. I find him just so funny when he's just talking in conversation and being himself Then I find him when he's, you know, uh, in front of a camera running through well-rehearsed lines. He was just that good as a conversationalist, and obviously that's a big reason that the quiz show was on for 13 years, and then some. Hmm.
1: That's interesting, because I find him delightful company on those shows, uh, incredibly uh, relaxing and charming, but, but very, very noticeably not the Groucho that, that he is supposed to be and that everybody wants him to be. I find him a bit hit and miss, certainly, as a, as a wit. Lovely, very charming, but but uh, not not uh, not the Groucho of legend. He
2: comes across as a real person. When Woody Allen first met Groucho, he said he reminds me of one of my Jewish relatives, and that is the Groucho who comes across, I think, on those Cavett interviews. Yeah, he's wittier and and kind of more a more iconoclastic figure in numerous ways than anyone you're likely to run into at a family wedding. But ultimately, he's, you know, a, a, a man in old age, uh, who has the spotlight and makes the best of it, but who you might run into on the street or at the store.
4: I think Woody Allen said to Cavett on the PBS show that he regarded Groucho on talk shows as uh, resembling a Jewish uncle. Yeah. Al- although I think he said clearly more gifted, and that's about as far as he went <laughs> in complimenting Groucho Marx. Well,
2: I, you spent your entire life being funny. I mean, Groucho could had a whole reservoir of, mm. of wit just available to him at any time. Mm-hmm. The same way if you spent your life being a lawyer, you'd have a whole legal library you could reach into and quote from at any moment.
4: That's a good analogy, yeah. As we
1: said before, um, of course, it also does make an enormous difference, doesn't it, that that Chico and Harpo were dead at this point and Zeppo didn't want to be interviewed and nobody knew who Gummo was. So the focus was was solely on Groucho. If the if the Marx Brothers revival had actually focused on three living Marx Brothers, I think the the whole dynamic might have been very different.
3: And there's a couple of other uh, missing links uh, around this time that we haven't touched upon. Groucho had made some uh, a variety show appearances, reviving some old uh, movie skits on Craft Music Hall and uh, Hollywood Palace. And I think he was on the Jackie Gleason show a few times doing some doing some bits.
1: So uh, that's very important, actually, isn't it? A very good point, because if the, the Groucho on the Hollywood Palace with, with Margaret Dumont um, is is. A Groucho who is absolutely looking backwards, isn't he, at his at his aging original audience? It's very mm-hmm. very different from the Groucho of five years later, who's looking ahead at a new young audience. I think it's very much a, a pure nostalgia piece, isn't it? That Hollywood Palace show and the and the the one where he sings Hackenbush. I um, hadn't that hadn't struck me actually until you said that. But that is the, those that's what makes those shows so different. Sometimes
2: in those appearances he seems to sincerely believe that it's now up to Melinda to hang on to the Marx audience. <laughs> yes. The Rankin Bass animation studio produced a television special called The Mad 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 Comedians. Which had segments based on the work of all of these classic comedy stars, um, W. C. Fields and and many others, um, including the Marx Brothers. And the Marx Brothers segment was a a very abridged version of the Napoleon scene from "I'll Say She Is." Um, in in my opinion, as I've expressed uh, probably more than anyone wanted to hear it from me, not not an outstanding version of the Napoleon scene. Very very drastically edited down and. Um, and, and not terribly effective. But it does have Groucho doing his own vocal performance um, and Paul Fries playing Chico. This special came out in 1970, so it would be early on in the phenomenon we're talking about.
1: And I guess we also should mention Skidoo. There's never going to be a, a more sensible time to mention Skidoo. Skidoo, this extraordinary anomaly of 1968, <laughs> where Groucho, mm-hmm. after having spent the previous uh years of the decade bemoaning just about every aspect of of uh modern youthful popular culture from music to movies to theater uh for, for, who caused angry scenes in theaters by complaining in the middle of the interval and walking out and berating the audience mm. and so on uh suddenly decides to get involved in this film which is almost um you know, almost a parody of, of the counterculture, um, mm-hmm. a ridiculous, a ridiculous film in which uh, various old celebrities uh, endorse LSD, dropping out, uh, caftans, uh, and what have you. I've never really had a convincing explanation given to me of why he got involved in that. I mean, the, the, all I know is that he and Jackie Gleason sort of talked each other into doing it. If you if you do it, I will. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it was just the money and the fact that he didn't have to travel very far, but it just seems to be everything he hated at that point.
2: Skidoo is even more inexplicable when you Set it alongside some of the projects he turned down that seemed to be mm. much more worthy of his attention or much more up his alley. But it's, Skidoo is one of those films that if you describe it to someone who hasn't seen it, it sounds like the best thing yes. ever. Or it, it at least sounds incredibly interesting. Yes. And, and people say, oh my God, I, I have to see that. I can't <laughs> believe it. And, and the cast list is so outrageously <laughs> prodigious, you know. People, wait a minute, Carol Channing too, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, it's pretty, uh, it's nearly impossible to sit through.
1: It's very plot heavy as well, isn't it? I was expecting it to be much more freewheeling, much more like, you know, the head, the monkey's film or something, you know, but it, but it, it plods through a, a story, which is sort of almost interesting for the first sort of 20 minutes or so. And then when it goes haywire and is supposed to to get interesting it just it just plummets doesn't mm. it into into uh, turgidness but uh, i mean mm. as bob has said many times what you the one thing you do have to say about groucho's performance is that it's incredibly spirited he looks vastly uh, more energetic than he should be for a man of his age he's giving it his all and, and he at least doesn't disgrace himself his character is a gangster who is a sort of codenamed
2: God. And so it's often been said, including in the publicity materials for the film, that Groucho Marx plays God in Skidoo. It's not quite the case, because in the film, he doesn't play a character with any kind of celestial <laughs> power or presence. Uh, however, it is a little bit of a tease. Um, imagine if Groucho had gotten a chance to take on that role, the way George Burns eventually yeah. did. Mm-hmm. I think Groucho would have made an excellent God.
1: and as i think i think bob was the first person to point out what a what a missed opportunity that zeppo wasn't recruited to play his secretary jesus wagstaff (laughs) 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 right so let's let's move forget skidoo now then as as most people have done as most people did before they even got out of the cinema um let's move on to to an evening with groucho which was a, a massively important Uh, milestone moment in his career um but for me at least uh who who wasn't there at the time um that that's all it is i can easily understand being swept up in the, the spirit of the moment if you were actually in the auditorium um but listening to the to the cold vinyl um i hear a frail old man and not much else um what am i missing
3: I felt that way from the first uh, moment I heard it right when it came out. you know, uh, I hadn't really been exposed to the post-stroke Groucho, so it was, quite, it was quite a shock.
0: Hello, I must be going. I cannot stay, I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going.
4: I was uh, rather saddened by it, as a matter of fact. That I may have played that LP a total of four times in my life. You no, know, yeah, once I'm, for me. Yeah, once whenever I'm, I'm feeling uh, exuberant or you know relaxed, and I want to tense up and get depressed, I would put that on. <laughs> yeah, my... you know,
3: the only way I was able to get through it was to put the speed up to forty-five.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's get some life into him, yeah. I, I
2: had a similar uh, initial response, and I also missed all the in-between stuff. I, I found this album pretty early on in my uh, worship of the Marx Brothers, and I hadn't yet seen even You Bet Your Life. So I went right from the movie Groucho to this Groucho. And, wow. yeah, on first listen, I found it almost heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, then as I got used to it and just sort of accepted, OK, this is where he was when this was recorded, um, things that are interesting about the album started to reveal themselves to me as its main features, including that astoundingly good overture that Marvin Hamlish plays, um, which I uh, have come to refer to as the grouch overture. That is a a beautiful medley uh, which combines Beethoven with all these numbers from Marx Brothers movies – and it's also very interesting that Groucho's repertoire on this record is mostly, it comes from before the films. Um, you would expect that he might have sung all the songs he sang in the movies, but I, I think Lydia and Hello, I Must Be Going are the only such examples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much of what he performs musically on that record um, is all this early vaudeville novelty stuff, the Toronto song and... Um, uh that early Irving Berlin, Stay Down Here Where You Belong, um, and that uh um, the one about all oh, the Bucks, what's that one called? Tim Buck Two. Oh yeah uh an early Kalmar and Ruby uh Tin Pan Alley novelty song. And I found that very interesting, that Groucho, who never was a solo artist really, like Groucho alone on stage entertaining an, entertaining an audience, virtually never happened. And when it finally was time to do that, uh, he went right back to his pre-1920 repertoire.
1: Yes, that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, um, uh, you know, um, whatever it is, I'm against it, which would you think would be an absolute yep. must for that audience. but uh, Right. Everyone says I love you. It's it's in the overture,
2: but Groucher doesn't sing yeah. it.
1: Yeah oh another
2: really haunting thing about that record this is also true of the cavett appearance that erin is on is when groucho sings hello i must be going and erin assumes the margaret dumont role but in erin's voice when she sings for my sake you must stay for if you go away you'll spoil this party (laughs) i am throwing
3: for my sake you must
2: It sounds like this kind of chilling, horrible metaphor from <laughs> what she was putting yes. Groucho through. <laughs> yes. She's insistent. She screams it at him. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. For, for my mm-hmm. sake, you mm-hmm. will stay here. Yeah. 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 She did the same thing on CBS and the new Bill Cosby show. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing.
1: Uh, yeah. Let's actually stop and, and just and talk a bit about Erin actually here because, because one of us has met her.
4: Oh, yeah? And Who's I,
1: that? And I, th- I think it's you, Jay.
4: Oh, that was me. I almost <laughs> forgot about that. That's in one of your books, as I recall. I, but I think it <laughs> might be, actually, yes. I'm still waiting for the check, by the way. <laughs> I never trust an Englishman.
3: Was she offering to take care of you, Jay,
1: as well? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I would have definitely considered that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Tell us about the Erin you met then, because this was this was deep into the the mad period, uh, as it were, and and I think you you found a a surprisingly um, approachable person there, didn't you?
4: Yes, I did. I met her in March of nineteen seventy nine, and the circumstances were peculiar, as you might guess. Um, long before um, she became notorious. I simply looked up her phone number in the Los Angeles phone book in the St. Paul Library. I had no particular plans to phone her or to write to her, but I had the number. So I did write to her right before I made a a trip out to L.A., and she was receptive to this. And so, um, yeah, I just showed up at the appointed time, and she... She had a big iron gate outside of her her home and uh, I buzzed her and she let me in and she was polite. Um, she was actually uh, forthcoming to some extent, but uh, the behavior that we've come to expect uh, slowly surfaced, in my opinion. Uh, so at the same time that she was quite hospitable and attentive, and actually encouraging to some extent, uh, in terms of I don't know, at one point she told me that she thought that if if I had been around at the time, I could have assisted with the cataloging of all the you bet your life episodes. I think Andy was doing that at the time. She had no reason to say that, but she's just trying to make me feel good. Uh, but then later uh you know she was describing some of the uh, stuff that was going on behind the scenes she had nothing as you might guess uh very flattering to say about uh, arthur marks um and well she made a joke about him, almost within 5 minutes made a joke she was talking with Zeppel, and Zeppel had a theory, according to Aaron, that the reason Arthur came out the way he did, whatever that means, is because, what was it, Ruth was pregnant with him at the time, and they were, they were performing on stage and dancing, and uh, Zeppel lost his grip or something, and she <laughs> fell into the, uh, where the band area was. While carrying Arthur. So that that was Zeppel's big joke. I'm sure he told it much, much better than I just attempted to. Because Zeppel was a funny guy. We all know that. He was the funniest guy off, off, off stage. But, um, you know. Well, and also a big cheerleader for Aaron, wasn't he? Oh, yes. They were buddies. Yes. There's no question yeah. about that. So I, I'm, let me just say that I'm, I'm not. Reinforcing her opinion of Arthur by any means. I just thought it was peculiar that she came forth with this kind of cruel joke, this cruel anecdote, <laughs> within moments of my sitting down. You know. Mm. Other than that, she was swell. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of astonished later because, you know, I I had not printed that interview until Matthew announced that he'd be writing this book. And then I revisited the interview, and I didn't think I had anything there worth printing. But I I was able to, to sew something together by transcribing the entire hour interview and then editing it which i think is is not uncommon practice i don't think it's particularly um against the uh, you know the the rules of journalism i was able to look at a section on page 1 of my trans- transcription and then note that she expanded on a thought on page 3 so i would just put those passages together and suddenly i had some substance to this thing mm-hmm. now, i think that's the only time I, I did that to any extent but it was quite Interesting to uh, discover there the, there was something there worth printing, as Matthew has proven, but I, I didn't know it for many years. It's interesting
1: in the the, the interview she gives to Barry Norman in in uh, the BBC documentary on Groucho, where she appears to be. Projecting, as we would say now, in, to, to quite an extraordinary degree, where she describes the atmosphere inside Groucho's house as being everybody walking on eggshells and, and terrified of, of some outburst of anger or ill temper. But, but she attributes that ill temper to Groucho rather than herself and implies that she too was, was walking on eggshells. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, an interesting woman i mean i i in a funny way i feel more ambivalent about her knowing as much as we now do than i would have done had i simply thought that she was this pushy person who 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 forced groucho into into late life appearances i mean i think if, if all i knew about her was that she was behind an evening with groucho uh making him wear denim uh, and making him pose with queen i think i would probably feel a lot a lot less about her you know than than what i that i do now even though i know that she was you know physically and mentally abusive i mean it is a sad story i don't think it's um it is a
4: sad story a black
1: and white story you know about a, a wicked witch and a and a and a dear old man it is a very very sad kind of accident isn't it a collision of circumstances
4: yes. and certainly the, yes. the, the fullest account of those years and of that Environment that you're likely to come across, is in my friend Steve stellier's book, Raised Eyebrows. My years inside Groucho's house. I mean, that's quite a testament to the uh, the zaniness, shall we call it, of 1083 Hillcrest yes. at the time.
1: Yes, and a grim page-turner. Why didn't she ever write a book?
4: That's a very good question. I don't know.
1: She's one of the
2: most complicated figures in the whole saga, and. I think it's very easy to blame the sadness of Groucho's later years on this unstable young woman who entered the scene. And certainly there's no excusing the aspects of her behavior that were abusive and horrific. But she did step into a giant void created by Groucho's alienation from his children. And she did provide, you know, as we've often remarked, um a kind of awareness of his own legendary status that was valuable to Groucho and perhaps played some role in keeping her uh, him alive. And she also founded Groucho Marx Productions, which exists to this day.
1: And, and I don't think she was in it to make a buck either. Whatever her, however complicated her motives were, I don't think she was out to exploit him in any obvious way, financially or, or, or any other obvious way. Um, I mean, it's interesting that a lot of the charges made against her when it, when it, it all did go to court, there was a lot of talk about her receiving sums of money and gifts and so on. Um, as if, as if she was, you know, a, a little gold digger. And I don't think she was at all i think her, her motives were far more complicated than that and she was actually surprisingly unmercenary it's true i sometimes you get the impression that she and groucho
2: were mutually clinging to each other to stay afloat they were life rafts for each other yes uh, each had something the other needed in order to survive
4: she put it to me in terms of love and she she quickly added um, perhaps to reassure the world, uh, or at least me, that she wasn't <laughs> talking about physical love, but she was talking about genuine affection for each other and genuinely caring for each other. And I I suspect, uh, yeah, I wasn't there, but that certainly sounds uh, you know, realistic to me. I, Groucho was not the easiest guy to get along with, certainly at that time. And um, I'm sure they both had... Sort of rough edges, if you will, but uh, you know, it's just a very complicated uh, relationship, and it's. um, I'm sorry to say, I don't think it's unique in um, show business, and there are so many others that went through that type of thing. And um, I mean, in a funny way,
1: it it, she it almost her relationship with Groucho almost reminds me a little of, of Groucho's with melinda in that um she eventually said that he you know he was pushing her into show business she didn't really want to and and his position was you know i genuinely truly did not realize that i i thought she was loving every second of it and i was doing exactly what she wanted me to do and there's a very very fascinating bit in Jay's interview with Erin where she quotes Dylan Thomas rage rage against the dying of the light do not go gentle into that good night and she says that's exactly what he was doing he was raging against the fact that he was an antique and wanted to be 20 again so you know if if that's what you thought then you know you can see why she did feel she was doing him a, a huge favor even to the extent of of having to You know, let's say very, very, very boisterously push him.
2: Yeah. And, and how can you not look at the example of Minnie Marks in all of this? I mean, on one hand, they're polar polar opposites in the fan imagination because we all love and cherish the notion of Minnie Marks and we all feel some level of scorn for Aaron Fleming. Um, but the, these are both sort of domineering stage mothers of a type who are responsible for pushing Groucho into the footlights um it's not that he wasn't enthusiastic himself but he needed this um you know this very forceful female guide making him do it giving him somebody to impress
3: well i may be way off here but i see a bit of a correlation between Groucho's situation and that between uh, Brian Wilson and Dr uh, Eugene Landy in uh, both cases, you got a, uh, you know, a legendary performer who's not really at the top of his game anymore, but his uh, caretaker supposedly is getting him back out there, you know, in the limelight, uh, maybe not in his best interest, but reviving his career and uh, to the point where the family has to intervene. Jay, okay,
2: when you met Aaron and spent time with her, did you get any sense from her? How do you think she felt about this attention from Marx Brothers fans? Was she like relishing the chance to speak to uh, a young person who was interested? Or did she seem kind of uh,
4: put upon in any way? She didn't seem put upon, but I don't think she was seeking any more attention. I think she had gotten quite enough attention by the time the lawsuit had wrapped up. Um, Yeah. Uh, I think she was kind of curious about me and why I started this fan club in the Twin Cities. And um, I, she may have been intrigued by the fact that I had her her phone number for so many years. Hmm. Um I would have been creeped out if it was me, you know, but um, it was her, so I, I like to believe that she was intrigued rather than... Creeped. Is that why you won't give me your phone number, Jay? I'll be glad to give you my phone number, but uh, not not the actual phone number, of course. So, yeah, well, I, I didn't ask her. I, I should have. But um, just from her being low-key... She took phone calls from Marvin Hamlish, by the way, when I was there. It wasn't like I was her focus of the afternoon. I was kind of amused by it because I was uh, in her living room area, and the phone rang in the kitchen, and she excused herself, and I'm kind of twiddling my thumbs at this point, and I heard her pick up the phone and say, Oh, Marvin! And they had a nice chat. Uh, no, it could have been you know some other Marvin. It could have been that guy in Mad World. I don't know, but I assumed it was Marvin Hamlish.
3: Not Marvin Kaplan.
4: Not Marvin Kaplan. No. Yeah.
1: Um, just before we leave the subject of an evening with Groucho, let's just talk dif- uh, briefly about the 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 different recordings, the four versions of the show. He did that uh, one man show uh, four times, a kind of a warm up in Iowa the the showpiece show in in new york's carnegie hall and then also in san francisco and then later again in los angeles the album claims that it uses the new york san francisco and iowa shows Uh, it certainly uses at least two shows to modern ears the changes in sound quality as it cuts in and out between different recordings are very very obvious but uh, the San Francisco show has recently emerged in its entirety. And it is very, very interesting in that it's a much more lively performance.
0: My grandfather had been a magician in Germany,
1: and my grandmother yodeled and
0: played the harp. They traveled from town to town in a covered wagon. They came to America, a harp learned to play the harp. And my grandmother's harp, which was about this big, and was worth at least $35. (laughs) He found it in the closet. He was self-taught because he was a natural musician, Harpo. He once tried to take lessons, and he got a teacher over from the Metropolitan Opera House. And the teacher came in, and he said to Harpo, he said, "Uh, let me hear you play something. And Harpo started to play those roles that he did. And the teacher said, that's real good. Says, "Could you teach me that? I'll give you ten dollars."
3: Apparently, there is a video or a film. Yes, a, the, a, the the, the Los final Los, show, the Los Angeles show, but the Los yeah, Angeles show, yeah, yeah. which was, yeah, was so
1: by far the worst. Uh, uh, another stroke uh, had 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 uh, massively debilitated, yeah. him in betwi- debilitated him in between. Um, it was videotaped. Jay, I believe, has seen it. I believe it's mm. unbearably
4: sad. There's a very popular cable channel in the States called Comedy Central. But when it began, it was called the HA channel, H-A mm-hmm. exclamation point. And that's mm-hmm. where this video surfaced. And if I remember correctly, I did record it on... VHS, I have mm. subsequently lost it or erased it or something. But uh, for good reason, because it was uncomfortable. It wasn't, you know, I was joking about the, al- the album earlier and about oh, how I would listen to it if I wanted to feel depressed. Well, the video, uh, that was no joke with the video. I, <laughs> I genuinely was depressed, which yes. is probably why I got rid of it.
3: The record album they could edit and tighten it up. Yes, that's you know, true. They can. That's yeah, exactly right. So much right. with the film.
4: Mm-hmm. Plus, you can't see him
1: with the double hit of of the, his slowness and uh, and I believe it's correct in saying that that on that performance he actually. It's not just uh, subpar, but it, but he is actually lost. Uh, he's wandering. He doesn't he doesn't pick up his cues. He he he's, There are long periods of silence. I mean, how they managed to mm. uh, cobble anything together, I, I don't know. But I believe that was the case.
3: So I just came across this um, essay Robert Bader has written about the Groucho tour and uh, the album. Let me just read an excerpt here. Uh, we'll post this entire article on the uh, on the on the blog. It's a it's a nice piece. The show debuted in Ames, Iowa, at the C.Y. Stevens Auditorium at Iowa State University on April 29th. The big event was the upcoming Carnegie Hall show in New York on May 6th. All of the shows would be recorded for a planned album. After Carnegie Hall, Groucho traveled to France to be honored at the Cannes Film Festival. He returned to the stage on August 11th at the Masonic Auditorium in San Francisco. But it was all too much. On September 12th, Groucho suffered a stroke and was hospitalized. October performances in Chicago and Detroit were canceled. The September 24th performance in Los Angeles was rescheduled at the assistance of Aaron Fleming, but Groucho was not well enough to perform. Aaron told the press that the postponement was the result of Groucho being depressed by the September 5th massacre of 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team in Munich, Germany. The stroke was not disclosed. The album would be made from the three shows already recorded. In reviewing the recordings, producer Phil Ramone concluded that the Carnegie Hall performance was the weakest. The tapes were deftly edited to utilize portions of the Iowa and San Francisco shows, along with the best material recorded at Carnegie Hall. An Evening with Groucho was enjoying its run on the Billboard charts when Groucho finally played at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles on December 11th.
1: Yes, that's what it sounds like, isn't it? Is that the Carnegie, the Carnegie Hall show is the, is the framework, the Marvin Hamlish the Dick Cavett, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the kind of the lead in. And then you can tell by the sound, it almost certainly cuts to something else very, very, very early on. But it, it does appear to be largely Iowa. And I, I don't know why, mm. if, if San Francisco was professionally recorded, because it is so, so much the better show as, as people will have had a chance oh, to yeah. hear from our, from our clips there. But we
3: should mention here that despite all this against it, it was a hit. It was a huge hit.
1: It was. It was yes. Old. Yes. But yeah.
3: It was very popular.
1: Which brings us then to the, the re-premiere of, of Animal Crackers. If there was one event that, that most, um, serves as the pivot for the 70s revival, it was the reappearance of Animal Crackers, which you unfortunate Americans hadn't been able to see for some time. We, we'd seen it hundreds of times. We had it on television. We, we programmed it at cinemas, but, uh, you couldn't because oh, yeah. of a, because of a rights issue. Uh, and it emerged, um, back in 1974, thanks to the Efforts of Mr. Steve Stolia and the what was known as the re-premiere, which was attended by Groucho and Victor Herman, um, brought about scenes of pandemonium that, that exceeded even the the Carnegie Hall date. Um, it was it was almost a case of 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 like a religious pilgrimage. Devotees. Uh, F- flocking to touch the hem of this divine figure and almost almost tearing him limb from limb in the process um, it really
3: was amazing because you know you had this this act from the distant past which, which had all this great work and here's basically for all intents and purposes a new work it's like all of all of a sudden a new beatles album showed up from from their middle of their prime that nobody had heard you know it was just it was just amazing that there, here was something a new piece of not only a new piece of Marx Brothers, a new piece of great great Marx Brothers. Yes. Right in the middle of their renaissance. It couldn't have been better timed.
1: Almost be like if, if humorist turned up now and was brilliant. Uh, which is a you know a, a twofer that is almost uh, impossible because even if it does show up it's almost certainly of historical interest only here was this film that was to all intents and purposes new and was also absolutely fucking amazing it must have been mm-hmm. an incredible moment but even you know even before we knew that even before it was shown the pandemonium at the venue uh was was like Uh, a (laughs) like a rock concert and then some i mean police did have to be brought in didn't they to to protect this man
3: too bad we don't know anybody who was there (laughs) that'd be a nice story to hear
1: yes we did talk to scott alexander the the famous screenwriter of edward and many other movies he was there and he had a very interesting story to tell and it went something like this
6: The crowd was primarily college-age kids. Everyone's dressed as Groucho. A lot of guys in Captain Spaulding outfits, with the hat. Uh, everyone is singing "Hooray for Captain Spaulding," and someone has shown up with a truckload of boxes of Animal Crackers, which everyone is throwing at each other. And it's just—it's just like this big, crazy party outside, and it's a bit of a free-for-all. And I—I'm tiny. I'm, you know, I'm just a short little Jew, and my sister's tiny, and it's kind of overwhelming. It's exciting and overwhelming and scary and exhilarating, and then uh, you know, a bunch of limos pull up at the, at the edge of the red carpet, and everyone starts screaming, oh my God, oh my God, it's him, it's him, it's him, and the door opens, and the crowd rushes the carpet in the car, and I can't see a freaking thing, because I'm small, and... It's funny how that
3: mirrors the opening to Animal Crackers. Everybody excited with Groucho showing up. Yes,
6: yeah, yes. And um, and I and there's movement. I can t- I can see that there's bodies getting out of a car, but I can't see a thing. And I and I start screaming. I can't see him. I can't see him. My dad says here. My dad picks me up, puts me on. I mean, my, my parents were like so studly this night. Puts me on his shoulders. Can you see him now? Can you see him now? I go no. It's just like it's just. It, I mean, it is Day of the Locust. It is just the mob. <laughs> that's just. About just <laughs> swallow up marks.
4: Well, I, I will say that um, there were certainly bootleg prints uh, resurfacing before. Oh yeah, it was theatrically released, but they were in such bad shape mm-hmm. uh, because they'd be dupes of dupes. You know, and the more you copy a, a print, the worse it, it is, and. Uh, I went to a place uh, locally that was on campus called the Zanadu Film Festival, and that was actually the first time I saw Animal Crackers, and I didn't know what to make of it because the sound was muffled and uh, the faces were almost washed out, and it was just it it was a combination it was a bewildering combination of being so intrigued by seeing this film for the first time and the frustration of trying to make head or tail out of it. So, thank goodness that they cleared the rights and pristine prints are now available, as we well know.
3: I had seen it before the the re-premiere as well in, in sort of a similar setting. Yeah, some of the hard, a lot of the hardcore fans had seen the film, but for the mainstream, mainstream, yeah. uh, American public hadn't. And yeah, the, the, the quality of it, you know, the, the, the bad parts of coconuts, if you could picture those, like the whole film was like that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So this was the moment when the the Marx revival was was fully acknowledged and had exploded to its its fullest degree. It was it was on, it was full on, and it was in that febrile, charged moment that uh, a man called Jay Hopkins had an idea. Tell us about that idea, hmm. Jay.
4: Well, I'll be glad to. Um I was a member of the Laurel Hardy fan club which is an international fan club called the Sons of the Desert and although I I still enjoy enjoy going to those meetings I obviously prefer the Marx Brothers and I thought gee it'd be nice if there was a fan club that I could join with the Marx Brothers I I knew there wasn't one locally but I thought there might be a national club but who to ask well, once again, I went to the St. Paul Public Library and I looked up Susan Marx's address in the Rancho Mirage phone book and wrote to her. And well, that was it, I, I wrote to her not only to tell her how delighted I was with the Marx brothers and with Harpo in particular, but I simply wanted an answer to this question. Is there such a club? And she said, no, but we'd be delighted if you were to start one. (laughs) And it wasn't really something I wanted to do. But I was determined to create an environment where, where Marx Brothers fans could get together in an actual auditorium and screen the films and screen related film such as the quiz show and enjoy it as a group. And that's why I ended up doing, you know, it became the Marx Brotherhood. Now that's not the most creative name in the world, but I thought it would get the message across pretty clearly. And I was wrong because in order to promote <laughs> this thing on the university of Minnesota campus, I would um, staple these posters all over the campus. But some of them were continually teared down. They were ripped down. And I couldn't, within days of my putting them up, and I couldn't figure out who would be doing this. And then we we finally came to the determination. I I can't remember if it was... um, John Bircher's, or if it was, I think it was a um, Transcendental Meditation Group, and somehow they misinterpreted (laughs) the word Marx or something. And I had had Hirschfeld's famous drawing, you know, as the major part of the poster, and it said, interested in the Marx Brothers? You know, obviously (laughs) these people were not only disinterested, they were determined to rip down the posters. That's about as disinterested as you can get, you know. So aside from uh, that bit of sabotage, I managed to get the word out, and um, it took off. At one point, uh, we would have up to 200 people attending screenings.
3: And you had a newsletter or newspapers that you distributed? Oh,
4: well, first of all, if if you were to be a member, you would get these flyers that would announce the upcoming programs. But we did have a magazine and in this case, I did not invent the name. I think I stole it from Maxine. No, from Miriam Marks, because Miriam Marks, when she was in college, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she had a column in the school newspaper called Re. Mm-hmm. R.E. Colin Marks. And uh, I thought that was, that was too good not to steal. So we created a couple of issues of this magazine called Remarks. And uh, is, it perhaps has more typographical errors than any other publication <laughs> known to man. But, um, you know, that's why I eventually went out to LA and, and interviewed a few folks because I wanted to put the interviews in that magazine.
1: So tell us about some of the um, the more eventful um, evenings at the Marx Brotherhood. I'm I'm thinking, for instance, of the night you interviewed Charlotte Chandler.
4: Well, I almost got her killed, for one thing. <laughs> uh, not on purpose. But I – well, let me give you a little backstory in on this. It was pretty funny. I heard about her book coming out, so I wrote to her and told her about the club, and it turned out that she had – Planned to visit the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and Saint Paul, uh, to to promote the book, and I said, "Well, we'll have to have you at the club. It'll be terrific." Well, what happened in the meantime is that the the people that that ran the television cameras that union went on strike right before she was to hit town, so I got this unanticipated phone call from her. And she said, well, I'll definitely be at your club, but all my television appearances have been canceled. And she she asked me, now I'm just like an 18-year-old kid living at home with my parents, you know. And she wanted to know if I had any connections, if I could somehow either get her, if not get her on television, at least arrange for some visits at uh, bookstores and so forth and I said well the best I can do is get you to the club but (laughs) I will get you to the club so I picked her up at her hotel in downtown Minneapolis and I was so nervous my gosh that I went right through a red light and she screamed and if I wanted to be Mean, I might suggest that her wig nearly popped off, but I won't say that. I don't know for a fact that she wore a wig, but um, she was definitely startled. So um, by the time we got to the the Marx Brotherhood, um, you know, she was wide awake and, and ready to go. And ready to talk for about three hours, if I remember rightly. That's I? the way it turned out. Well, that's another thing. Let me, you know, I, I, I can't help but, but, but be self. Uh, deprecating, because look at all the material I've got to go with here. <laughs> now, I was just so ill-disciplined as an interviewer, and, and so grateful that she was there to tell these stories, that with her and myself on stage uh, soliciting questions from the audience, it did go on forever. and Because I, I just couldn't bring myself to say, okay, that's it, that's enough. And what's funny about it is... We made an audio recording of this, and the auditorium, uh, it's called Murphy Hall Auditorium, and it's it's in the journalism school building, but at that time, it was in such need of repair that the seats squeaked. Every time somebody would get off of the seat and walk out, or run out in this case, you'd hear... (coughs) So as you get further and further along into this interview, her voice is drowned out by the sound of these chairs. Sound like a like like the soundtrack for Hitchcock's The Birds, you know. So that was kind of that was kind of sad, actually, to be honest with you. But we got her there, and I did not get her killed on the way back. So points for me there.
1: In terms of testing your audience's patience. Presumably, you never did anything as silly as to try and make them sit there and listen to a recording of the Mikado.
4: Oh, yes. That was our least popular meeting, I must say. (laughs) Um, I don't think there were any chairs squeaking because there was nobody there in the first place. We had to artificially squeak the chairs just to pretend that there were people leaving. Must have been a (laughs) titwillow. Oh, yes.
1: Very good. So were you intending to get the, the TV show and couldn't or something? or what, I mean, what did you have in mind there?
4: As far as I knew, there was no Kinescope to get, although there was. Um, but what happened was I, I just fell in love with the Columbia Records release, which I think is much better than the Kinescope. And um, I did edit the thing. I, want, I have the flyer here somewhere, but I, I think... It only ran about 45 minutes, but that was enough for people not to show up, because I made it clear. I made it clear in the flyer, you know, this is strictly audio. We'll have some visual slides and stuff, but, you know, and this will be the second half of the double bill, and the first half is really good stuff, but they didn't come anyway. Uh, What was the first half? Well, I'd have to look it up to tell you which I can do, but I was going to say they didn't show up in droves. That's yeah. I mean.
2: <laughs> they stayed away in droves. Stayed
4: away. That's the actual cliche thing. It you is know. a
1: bizarre thing to uh, to imagine. People sat in rows just listening to something. I mean, <laughs> it is a very ambitious plan. I must admit,
4: we did that on occasion. Oh, here I've got, yeah. I've got the flyer here. The first part of the program was. A w. C. Fields film. It's a gift. And then we had yeah. Hollywood on Parade from 33. Well, we- I would
1: have come for that. My I'd,
4: God. I'll, next time I'll let you know.
1: I mean, when we did the the, the Marx Festival in Bath in, in 2016, John Teftela very kindly lent us some chunks of uh, never-before-heard-since-original-transmission flywheel and uh oh, cool. a, a couple of other radio appearances so we we played them uh, about 10 minutes or so each of of, of flywheel and, a, and another grad show show um and we had yeah a couple of slides but I- even for that length of time and it was absolutely it was wonderful it was fascinating it's great to hear it but but you sensed that you that was about as long as people were willing to take of just listening to something uh so, so uh, yeah. yeah, kudos to you for your <laughs> ambitious plan there. Um, <laughs> tell us about the door
4: prize. Well, this is also spectacularly unfunny. But what's. what's <laughs>
2: I think it's funny already. <laughs> it gets
4: worse. And I haven't even started. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I wanted to interject some humor into (laughs) into these meetings, you know. (laughs) Because I was, you know, I was always deafened by the sound of those chairs when people were leaving, so (laughs) I decided to have a door prize, and of course anybody could have predicted this. It turned out to be a door. What was unfortunate is... At least it wasn't a booby prize. (laughs) (laughs) Where were you when I needed you? (laughs) I, I didn't realize when I I went to a hardware store to get a door for this practical joke that there's a difference. You can get an oak door that is very, very, very heavy, or you can get a hollow door, which is not nearly as heavy. Well, I didn't know the difference, so I got this extremely heavy door <laughs> just for this stupid gag, and I had to have accomplices out in the hall hide it and then bring it in upon... The prompt, and of course, the person that won it refused it naturally enough. I think he said, "Unless you can get the, the house that goes around it, I'm not interested." So, uh, yeah, that that was that was the tragedy of that. I had to get rid of this thing, and I don't know if, well, how I got it. Back home, I think I tied it to the roof of my car or something. And then even when I got home, I didn't know what to do with it. I may still, still have, have it. it around. Yeah. I may still have it around here somewhere.
2: Hey, maybe it's time for a Marx Brothers Council yeah. contest. We could, uh, still, so we could still get that uh, door prize.
4: I don't know if you can uh, add it as an attachment to email very successfully. <laughs> that would have made it. And much, the winner assumes the shipping That would have made it much easier. Yeah.
1: So how long did the Marx Brotherhood last? What what sort of time period are we talking about here?
4: Oh, dear, let's see. I guess it would have began in 1976. And then I graduated in 79. And the club continued, but I was no longer the president of that organization, because I you have to be a student to be in in charge of a student organization. And we had to be a student organization to use the facilities. So um, I think I recruited a, a gent by the name of Kevin Anderson at that time, who, of course, was a student. And he, of course, liked the Marx Brothers. Those were the two requirements. And Mark Petty continued to assist. And, of course, I was involved in setting things up. And actually, it was kind of a... It's kind of like a puppet dictatorship now that I look back on it because I was still (laughs) calling the shots. But basically, Kevin Anderson was around to take the fall if there was any unpleasantness, (laughs) you know, from the police or the FBI or you name it. So it continued, oh, I think for maybe a year and a half. I know that we were having meetings in 81. That may have been the last year.
1: And that's about when I reaching to the towards the time when I, I discovered them. It's, it's interesting that it it bridged that uh, th- those two eras for me.
2: Efforts like the Marx Brotherhood and and Paul weselowski's efforts with the Fredonia Gazette and his open houses, these very clearly prefigure things like uh, the Marx Brothers Council and and Matthew's ba- Bath Marks and what we've done in New York with Marx Fest. And these kinds of fan gatherings and events um, have always been keeping the idea mm-hmm. of the Marx Brothers alive in various ways. And in in a very real way, people m- like my approximate age, Matthew's generation, um, you know, I was born the year Groucho died. And we were the beneficiaries of that 1970s surge of interest in the Marx Brothers because of that there was all this stuff lying around all these posters and books that had been generated during that period and i've i realized i came away when i was a child with the strange impression that there was something very 70s about the marx brothers uh not because of anything inherent to their work, but because all these books I had from the library they all had nineteen seventies color schemes and typefaces, and it all seemed sort of consistent with that post psychedelia look that we associate with seventies pop culture Matthew,
3: didn't we come across some reference to a Merck's fandom in Great Britain, like in the forties or fifties or something like that you, you remember that I don't actually know no. okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to dig into our, ar- our archives, and if I find it, you've, you're hearing this in the podcast. If I don't find it, this is going to yes, be cut no. out.
5: <laughs>
2: you use a little bit of Carnegie <laughs> Hall, a little bit of San Francisco. Did you
1: do find it, yeah. Cut it. Cut in me saying, "Yes, <laughs> you're absolutely right, Bob. Tell us more." <laughs> <laughs> Um, But yeah, I mean, so just uh, the revival thing, you know, is it is it happening again? Uh, Could it happen again? Uh, If it isn't happening again, if it couldn't happen again, what's different this time? Is it just that it's that little bit older again? I think the culture
2: is so much more fragmented now. I don't know if there could ever be that kind of massive revival of interest in an old showbiz institution, just because there's so many more places to go for that stuff. Uh, It's possible that the you know, the the current revival of interest in the Marx Brothers, it, it might be the same size as the one that happened in the 70s. It just feels smaller in today's landscape.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And let me just piggyback by saying that I think one of the reasons it's not likely to happen again is the same reason that it ended in the first place. Like I had mentioned before, I think one of the reasons for the 70s Renaissance was that there was a comedy hole. You know, there wasn't a lot of comedy for People of the baby boomer generation, so they look back and found the Marxists but uh once we got into the mid to late seventies and Saturday Night Live premiered and Steve Martin became big and Robin Williams came you know there were there was a whole new generation of comedy, and uh there wasn't as big a void, so the Marxes weren't as needed I'm gonna say, yeah, and that has continued through the decades, new comedians, new comic forms, new outlets. And it's just hard to imagine that there is room for uh the Marxists or any old uh act to find that big of an audience. It, it'll find a loyal audience. It will find an audience, but it's hard for us to imagine it becoming mainstream again. Sorry, folks.
1: Well, before we sign off on this edition of the Marx Brothers Council podcast, have a listen to this chunk of antique audio. You may well recognize one of the voices you're about to hear. The other one belongs to You Bet Your Life head honcho, John
5: Goodell. And um, I told him I wanted to do a quiz show. And I had this idea, but I didn't have it for anybody in particular. And he said, well, I flopped four times on the radio so far. I might as well compete with refrigerators and, uh, you know, and prizes and things like that. So we went into business together. Each put up $125 for a half of a record. Yeah, right. (laughs) We made the record uh, at the end of a house party show. We used the same audience. Oh, yeah. One of the regular daytime shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took it to all three networks. They all turned it down Mm. because they said, well, he's flopped four times on the radio so far. Mm. So naturally, he's not any good. Yeah. But then I read in the paper that a man named Alan Gelman, who was president of the Elgin American Compact Company, was coming out here from Chicago to buy the Phil Baker show, Everybody Wins. Yeah. It said buy. I hadn't bought it yet. Mm. So I called him up at the Beverly Hills Hotel and took him the, the audition record and played it for him. He thought that was very funny. He remembered the Marx Brothers and Coconuts. And he didn't know that Groucho had flopped four times on the radio, so he bought the show.
4: Mm. <laughs> Much to uh, Phil
5: Baker. Well, Phil Baker fired his press agent for putting the article in the paper about coming out to sign before it you was know. signed. You're rather sneaky, aren't you? Well, you read the paper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Jay, that was one of your uh, interview recordings with uh, with John Goodell, You About Your Life, and there are others too. And you have, with extreme generosity, thrown them over to uh to Bob to uh to mix and and to uh, for us to use in forthcoming uh podcasts the the Jay Hopkins interviews
4: I'm just delighted that you're allowing this avenue of distribution and hey they've been sitting in my closet in a shoebox for you know thirty years or more so it's about time that they get out there I think
1: so tell us who we've got to look forward to other than uh, Goodell.
4: Well, uh you have at your disposal, well, there's Aaron Fleming, whom we have mentioned. There's Arthur Marks. There's Nat Perrin. Nat Perrin's interview was of particular interest because, as you well know, he goes all the way back to monkey business, right, and Flywheel, uh, mm-hmm. Shyster Flywheel. Mm-hmm. But then he became a very important figure in the... uh the lawsuit against Aaron Fleming by the Bank of America and uh, he became Groucho's conservator as appointed by a judge so he had the referee between the the Arthur Marx side of of that split and Aaron Fleming and he had to you know he had to approve of when so and so could visit the house and he discusses that in the interviews and so that that one in particular i would encourage um, members of the uh, council to be on the lookout for Um, but beyond that i interviewed steve stolier a very very interesting interview with him and bernie smith who was the head writer and uh, co-director with robert dwan of you bet your life. And he was he was very forthcoming. Let me tell you a quick story about him. It'll be real quick. I interviewed him. He wanted to have lunch. So we went to a place in Beverly Hills called Hamburger Hamlet. <laughs> great name. And uh, although the hamburgers were not particularly great, and we interviewed, and then he he told me during the interview that he had the original the only surviving records of all the guests that appeared on You Bet Your Life over 13 years. And uh, it referenced the secret word and that type of thing. And I said, oh my goodness, could I possibly copy that? So he invited me to his house. And here I am taking, clearly, I'm I'm, I'm going to stay rooted there for hours on end because all I've got is a piece of paper and a pencil. And I'm writing all this stuff down. And I, I finally... I finally said, Bernie, I don't think you want me to be in your house for the next three days, do you? Could I walk out of here? There's a uh, photocopy shop down the road, and he let me walk out. And this (laughs) this was the only extant (laughs) copy of of all the guests and all the secret words Mm. and all the air dates and so forth. And I just thought that that showed a great deal of trust. But I really liked that guy. He was real down-to-earth. And he even let me hold ducky during the conversation. He said, would you like to see the duck? And I said, are you kidding me? Where is it? And he said, well, it's in my daughter's closet. She's moved out of the house, and, you know, I I keep it in storage in the closet. So, indeed, there it was, and I've got this nifty picture that he took, a photograph of me holding ducky. That was a real thrill, let me tell you. I mean, it really was. (laughs) Is it true that John Goodell asked you to meet him at 6 a.m.? Again, all my stories have to do with some defect with me. <laughs> <laughs> and this is no exception. I had the man on the phone. I was at a, a hotel that they have subsequently raised, not surprisingly, But it was called the Del Flores Hotel in Beverly Hills. And I've got Goodell on the phone. And, of course, I had corresponded with him ahead of time. And he knew about the Marx Brotherhood. And he he actually got me a print of Tell it to Groucho eventually. Uh, So, you know, we were communicating. And he knew I was in town. So I said, well, what time may I come over for the interview? And he said very quickly, all right, be here at 6. Click. And I I thought, no, that can't be right. I mean, well, who, who would open a door to me, well, at all, really, but especially at 6 in the morning? I thought, uh, I must have mis- misunderstood. So I interpreted his directions as be there at 8. So, of course, there I was, promptly late, and he came out of the house And he said, you're supposed to be here two hours ago So that's how we started that interview They had nowhere to go but up But he was, he was delightfully funny As you'll find out, those people that listen to it And uh, I encourage everybody to stay tuned for that uh, interview Because he was a very funny guy And of course, instrumental to Groucho's career I mean, if it had been for Goodell You know at the end of Groucho mm. Marx, as we knew it, may have been 1949. Indeed,
1: right? yeah, mm. yeah.
3: Are there any other interviews you tried to get that you couldn't quite get the...
4: Uh, well, again, it, it all comes back to my bad planning or whatever you want to call it, disorganization. I had written to Maury Riskin, and he actually wrote back. I, some of you may have seen that in the uh, council... He had a very creative way of using a typewriter ribbon. But he did tell me, if you're ever in town, look me up, I'll be glad to give you, you know, an hour of of my time for an interview. Well, in this case, it wasn't a matter of me mistaking the arrival time. It was not bringing his phone number with me. So I had no way of communicating with him. Now, I had his home address, so guess what yours truly did? <laughs> I walked up to his front door. There was a car in the driveway. Clearly, somebody was home. It um, it, it was raining on the way over there, but it had, it had stopped by the time I got to his front door, so I I had a collapsible umbrella, Well, when you collapse a black umbrella, it looks like a bully club. So there I am, knocking on his door. I had a beard, and I was wearing a leather jacket. Can you imagine this frail old man, who I think must have been in his 80s by that time? A very conservative guy by nature, anyway. uh, Can you imagine the state of panic he would be in? Or maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating it. Maybe he just kind of didn't pay any attention at all. But uh, that was, you could categorize that as poor planning on my part, you know.
1: <laughs> Which reminds me of your um, of your Nut Perrin story, where you, you got into his building, but you didn't know his apartment number. So you guessed.
4: All, all my, yeah, all my stories are about the, the <laughs> arrival or the misarrival. In this case, I, I had worked it out. He had agreed to meet me at a certain time that was not six in the morning. I made. Sure, I understood that. I think it was late afternoon. In fact, hot summer day in L.A. And I went to his. I think he had a condominium in a big building, condos. And I got to the door at the appointed time. I hasten to add, and I buzzed him, and he said, "Okay, Jay, great, come on up." Well, in this case, I went through the security door, and then I realized he hadn't given me the number of his condominium <laughs> and i i just kind of sensed i don't know why because there's no directory there at all but i i sensed that he was on the fourth floor or whatever it was and somehow i actually knocked on the right door <laughs> wow yeah that's Perhaps the most uh, impressive thing about all these interviews is that I knocked on the right door. <laughs> you correctly. He, he, quite something. He, he was just great, though. He was he absolutely Did you it. win a door prize? Uh, <laughs> 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 no, but I've learned to take a compass with me wherever I go now. So.
1: <laughs> So do listen out for the the Jay Hopkins interviews. Uh, they will be released uh, one at a time uh, in uh, in the weeks and months and years that follow. Um, you you've got a treat in store. Never before heard interviews with with key figures from Mark's history. For that and for everything else uh, today, thank you very much indeed, Jay Hopkins. It's been a pleasure having you.
4: Oh well the gratitudes on, on my end uh, even more so. Thank you so much.
3: That was painless, wasn't it, Jay? You were, you were all worried.
4: Pretty, pretty <laughs> painless except whenever I was talking that if you can possibly remove... Little, we'll cut those bits. That, <laughs> I certainly hope so.
2: <laughs> my goodness. Jay, you, you sell yourself way short. I, I have always found you quite tolerable. <laughs>
4: That's the nicest thing that anybody ever said to me. <laughs> Almost tolerable. No, but thank you for setting this up, and again, I'm delighted to have an outlet for these uh, recordings. Um, I don't know what you're going to do with the Arthur Marks one. It, it, it wasn't, by the way, that Arthur said don't use it, because I did use a tiny bit of it in a magazine piece once. But it's just that I found it so um, unusable, because my memory is that he kept saying... I. You know, I don't want to go into that story again, quote from my book. And I wasn't about to take extracts from his book when I had the man in front of me. (sighs) So
1: (laughs) So annoying when people do that, isn't it? I've had interviewees like that.
4: Oh, really? You really want me to tell that story again? Yes, of course I do, because people reading this article haven't read your book. Why do you think I traveled, you know, 2,000 miles to see you? Yes. I mean, I could have <laughs> reprinted your book from home. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to sit there while I read your book, yeah. Well, let me tell you the other story about the Arthur Marks thing. He got so bored with me that he tried to brush me off on, on people who were outdoors and at one point, <laughs> I mean, he just wanted to get the hell out of there. So he said, <laughs> and who can blame him? So at one point, he's pointing outdoors in this bright poolside, and we're in the, the you know dark, cool climate of the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, apropos, of course, with him. But he pointed outdoors, and he said, hey, look, there's Zeppel's ex-wife out by the pool. Go talk to her. Well, you know who that was? That was Mrs. Frank Sinatra. Can you imagine me walking up to Barbara
1: Yes,
4: Sinatra? <laughs> Jilly would have thrown me into the swimming pool.
1: Uh, if I could imagine anybody doing that, it would be you, Joe.
4: Yeah. Anyway
1: my Well thanks to jay hopkins for joining us and thanks to everybody for listening do please continue to listen do please share the links do please tell your friends do please join us on twitter and uh, do please uh what else what else should they do um be nice to each other yeah be nice to each other promote love and harmony be nice to old people and animals and if you haven't got my <laughs> book or noah's book uh buy them too because they're extremely good um and uh, do join us next time. Thank you very much, and thank you to Jay. Thank you, and Jay. Wait, Jay. We're going to have you introduce our our final
3: song. Jay, why don't you go ahead and do it?
4: <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs>